Starting Saturday, March 21st through Sunday, March 29th, supporters from all over the nation will run or walk 3.1 miles to make a difference for rare disease. The first annual Denim Dash 5K Run Walk for Rare Disease is a virtual race created by Orphan Drug Solutions and Global Genes. You've got the flexibility to participate wherever and whenever is most convenient for you. Run or walk any time between March 21st and March 29th and raise awareness and funds to support families affected by rare disease. Register today and get your race packet at givehope.globalgenes.org forward slash denim 5k. It's that easy. I'm Daniel Levine. And this is Rarecast. Recursion Pharmaceuticals has set the audacious goal for itself of developing 100 drugs in 10 years for rare diseases. The company, focused on repurposing compounds abandoned in clinical development by other drug makers, thinks it can achieve this by a fundamentally different approach to drug development than the industry's traditional process of screening compounds against potential disease targets. We spoke to Chris Gibson, founder and CEO of Recursion, about the approach his company is taking, whether rare diseases particularly lend themselves to it, and whether it has implications more broadly for drug development. Chris, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Drug discovery is expensive and time-consuming. Why is that, and what's the consequence, particularly for pursuing treatments for rare diseases? You're absolutely right. I think that drug discovery is expensive because it's complicated and because the 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 consequences of of being wrong uh mean that we could end up uh, really hurting somebody. So it it makes sense that it's expensive. Um but on the rare disease side, uh that becomes an issue because you have relatively small groups of patients who who need treatments, but the cost in many cases uh is so uh so extreme that getting drugs to those patients becomes uh, difficult economically if we're trying to expand that across thousands of, of rare diseases. A lot of drugs get abandoned in development for a variety of reasons. Companies change strategies and, and drugs that may have been shown to be safe turn out not to be effective for their intended use. What's the opportunity for repurposing? How, how big a universe of, of compounds is out there? That's that's a fantastic question. I think that the universe is is really huge. There are only so many druggable targets, uh, at least that we've discovered so far. And in many cases, there are really good drugs that that hit those targets, uh, but those targets may not have been as important uh, as they were originally thought for that specific disease. Uh, so I think that uh, it's it's a huge space, and it's one that we're very interested in working in because. If you find a drug for which a lot of is already known and you're able to find a new use for that drug, it, it cuts down the time and cost associated with bringing that drug to patients by 
depending on what stage the drug was in, potentially, you know, a decade and, and many millions of dollars. Well, the, the idea of repurposing drugs as a, as a way to cut time and cost is, is not new, but I think often the best examples come from rather fortuitous clinical observations rather than concerted development strategies, even though there are companies that have, have taken this approach. Are, are there technical or intellectual property barriers that make repurposing tougher than it seems? I think that, that there, there may be those barriers. I think that the intellectual property barriers sometimes are an issue, and I think that companies who, who own these drugs that might be the best candidates for repurposing have in the past perhaps been less willing to partner to try and find new uses for those drugs. I think we're seeing a shift in, in people's thinking around that. Many of these companies have worked with the NIH and, and NCATS to make some specific compounds available for repurposing projects. We're having some success in, in talking with mid and large size pharma companies who have some of these drugs in terms of trying to partner with them to find new uses. I mean, I think there definitely are, are some major challenges in the space, but the potential is huge. And you're right, you're right exactly that that many of the of the successes in the past did come from sort of serendipitous events, um, not all but many and we're trying to sort of systematize the evaluation of these drugs uh, rather than have it just sort of be serendipity and I think that we're seeing now the rise of several companies um, and, and academic groups that are working in this space it's sort of a uh, I would say that it's not new as you mentioned it's been around a long time but there's a renewed interest in, given the inefficiency of, of drug discovery in general and the cost of drug discovery, there's renewed interest in this sort of space of repurposing or repositioning drugs. Well, Recursion has announced goals of developing 100 drugs in 10 years, a, an audacious goal considering there are, on average, about 27 new drugs approved each year by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The goal is based on a very different approach you're taking to, to test drugs through a combination of disease modeling and, and computational algorithms. What's the approach? Can, can you walk us through that? Absolutely. And that is an audacious goal, and, and we've, we've gotten a little bit of flack for that, but I think it's critical to understand how different our approach is. So, what we do is, uh, I mean, to, to outline just the basics, is that we perturb human cells in some way that's consistent with the disease. And the place we've started is in genetic diseases. So there are thousands of these genetic diseases. We have a pretty good understanding in most cases of what the genetic perturbation is. And there are biological tools that are pretty good at sort of helping us replicate uh, those those genetic changes. So we replicate those genetic mutations or genetic perturbations, and then we essentially just take pictures of, of the cells with microscopes uh, and quantify thousands of features about each cell across tens of thousands of cells for many different models. Uh, and so rather than sort of building one assay that works for a single disease, which is an effective approach. It's been effective at, at bringing lots of drugs to market uh, or helping to discover drugs that can get to market. But instead, what we're trying to do is develop an assay that is generalizable for a relatively large number of diseases. So we take pictures of, of human cells where we've modeled one of these genetic diseases, and we look for those structures in the cell which are changing in some specific way that we can measure and in a way that's repeatable and in a way that's potentially pretty unique. 
And because we're measuring so many different things, there's actually a lot of a lot of data there. And so we use computational algorithms to sort of sort through that and help us decide which of these structural changes are useful and, and which aren't. And so far, we find that a relatively high percentage of genetic diseases, somewhere on the order of 25%, give us some structural change or set of structural changes in the cellular model that we believe is makes those models candidates for drug screens. So if you apply that across thousands of genetic diseases, you can imagine that we're able to develop hundreds of genetic disease models. Uh, and when we take a high-value drug compound, so a compound potentially from a partner that's already been through phase one clinical trials and, as you alluded to earlier, for some reason was abandoned, usually not for a safety reason, at least for the drugs we're interested in. Um, we can screen one of those drugs across potentially hundreds of genetic disease models. And all of this is very rapid. Uh, so the turnaround time is, is, is very brief. Now, once we find a drug that seems to rescue these structural defects, obviously the, uh, the, the work is not over. There's a lot of validation that sort of goes in. Uh, but, but our business model is really to partner with mid and large size pharmaceutical companies who, who have so much expertise in this space. And so for us to say we hope to be involved in developing 100 new treatments in 10 years really means we hope to, to be developing dozens of partnerships and with each of those partnerships moving forward a number of drugs. Well, your lead compounds are to treat cerebral cavernous malformation or CCMA a rare hereditary vascular disease that leads to hemorrhagic strokes. It's not an accident that this is your first disease. Is the approach the company is taking grew out of work on this at, at the University of Utah. C can you explain how it came about? Absolutely. So this was a disease that had been studied by uh, Dean Lee's lab at the University of Utah for, for a number of years. He was instrumental in, in identifying some of the uh, mutations that are responsible for the disease, uh, along with a number of other labs. And in some sense, we, despite a decade of work, nobody really understood exactly what the CCM proteins were doing. Um, it, it was still a bit of a mystery. We had ideas of some things they were doing, but sort of a, a whole picture of how the disease pathophysiology ex exactly works uh, was lacking. Um, and I think what what we realized was that there might be approach that an approach that allows us to sort of step around that lack of understanding. So because we understood at the beginning what the actual genetic perturbation was, we could model that perturbation, and we would see in in human cells in which we modeled the perturbation, uh, we would see these very striking structural changes in the cells. And what we realized was that though we may not understand exactly why those changes are taking place, they probably are quite important, and finding compounds that would mitigate those structural changes could be a very useful way to sort of go about doing drug discovery without entirely understanding what the pathophysiology of the, of the disease was. And in some sense, the CCM proteins themselves are sort of considered undruggable. So the drugs that we found are working via mechanisms that are not directly associated with the CCM proteins, but really mechanisms we believe that are associated with the effects of loss of those proteins. Um, and that's one of the nice things about our, our assay is that it's not sort of target-specific. So it may be that, uh, that we could develop a tar uh, an assay for a very specific target, and it turns out that some feedback loop um, 
in, involved in a certain disease could be a more useful place for us to be sort of pursuing treatments. Uh, and we would miss that with a very target-specific approach, potentially. With our approach, in some senses, we're able to find uh, those those drugs that act, in some sense, by an unexpected mechanism uh, to affect, in the end, a downstream change, which is the cell goes back to looking healthy or like it did before. So what does the pipeline look beyond CCM? Yeah, so right now we're, we're about 18 months old um, and uh, still in the early stages. We have about 65 genetic diseases that we've, uh, that we've developed models for, and I think 15 to 20 of those are sort of in the screening stage right now. And we have identified some very early candidates for one or two of those diseases. But beyond that, I, I think we're, we're still in the early stages. And, and part of where we go depends on the diseases of interest to our, to our partners. And we're having those discussions with them right now. Well, how difficult is it to, to model a genetic disease? Are, are you limited to monogenic diseases, single gene mutations? Or what are you doing to, to kind of build out those the number of diseases you're modeling is, as well as getting access to libraries of compounds that might have therapeutic benefit. Yeah, absolutely. So right now we're really focused on monogenic loss of function diseases to start. Those are in some, in some ways sort of the easiest place for us to develop this technology. But we're also working, you know, there's some fantastic new uh, genetic uh, editing tools that have, that have been sort of discovered in the past couple of years and we're working with with those specific tools in pilot projects to sort of expand beyond monogenic loss of function disease diseases to potentially gain of function diseases and other sorts of genetic diseases. But I should say that the approach itself, um, sort of the the genetic tools, uh, limit us in terms of which genes we can or which genetic diseases we can pursue. But the overall approach of the assay is not limited to genetic disease. So you can imagine that. Uh, we're able to induce cellular perturbations associated with human diseases of inflammation uh, in terms of specific cytokines uh, that we add to cells. We're able to see disease-specific signatures for the effects of various viruses that we can add to human cells. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of room for us to expand this technology to really be applicable to finding unexpected treatments for many different types of diseases. But as a small company, we're, we're trying to stay focused right now, and really that's in the monogenic disease space. And what are you doing to expand the library of compounds? Are you, are you able we're to active, do this through NIH or through individual yeah, drug so companies? The, the NIH has some compounds, and, and we're working with them to try and expand our library there. Uh, we also are directly talking with a number of pharmaceutical companies who have anywhere from dozens to hundreds of shelved assets. Uh, and we hope to be able to announce deals for, for us trying to find new uses for some of those drugs uh, in, in the coming months. Um, it's something we're actively doing, and I think it's one of the most important sort of milestones for us to achieve. So you're a young company. How, how are you funded to date, and, and how far will your existing funding take you? Yeah, we're privately funded so far, and it's uh, we are appreciative to all the investors that have enabled us to get where we are uh, today. And actually, this morning, we just announced a $1.46 million direct-to-phase-2 SBIR grant from NCATS uh, at the NIH. Um, so that is a, a significant amount of funding for us, given 
the cost of our screens is relatively low, that specific funding will enable us to expand from 65 genetic disease models to nearly 2,000 um, over the course of the next year or so. So we're excited uh, to have that funding, and uh, I think we'll be excited to sort of announce milestones for the development of our technology over the next year uh, and and see where uh, see where the technology takes us after that. You touched on this before, but in terms of your business model, how far are you expected to take a compound through clinical development? At what point would you hand it off to a partner or would you take it all the way to approval? Sure. So um, <clears throat> I guess it depends on the compound and the disease and the situation. But a, a general answer might be that we believe our expertise is really on the discovery side and our, our innovative discovery technology. And we're trying to partner with pharmaceutical companies whose expertise is very broad, but especially heavy in the areas of, of drug development. And so we're not interested in many cases in in trying to be the uh, the drivers of drug development. We would plan to rely on our partners for much of that expertise, and that frees us up to focus really on on the discovery efforts. That being said, our first our first compound for the treatment of CCM uh, is a compound that we identified uh, that is not a shelved asset sort of owned by some other partner that could drive development. And so we're taking that particular drug forward ourselves. At the same time, are, you're, you're looking at repurposing drugs that may have failed for some reason in clinical development, but are you looking at drugs that are already on the market as well? Yeah, um, I think that that is a difficult economic uh, question for us. So if a drug is already on the market um, and we were to find an, an additional use for it, um, how we might sort of uh, uh, use that to our advantage in, in a way that helps us keep the doors open and, and sort of move forward with development, uh, I think at, that time, at, at this time that's sort of an open question in many cases. There is there is some legislation before uh, Congress right now, the Open Act. Uh, I don't remember the bill number, but the Open Act that's uh, sponsored in in and has been put forth by the Every Life Foundation and others. I think is potentially very useful. And and the brief outline is that it gives companies that have a drug on the market an additional six months of exclusivity. Uh, in exchange for them identifying uh, a potential second use of their drug for a rare disease. And so in a case like that, our system might become uh, incredibly useful. But at this point, I think our focus is really more on those drugs that are not yet on the market in the U.S. Is there something that makes rare diseases more amenable to this approach? Or is there an opportunity here to alter the approach to drug discovery and development more broadly with what you're doing? I think there's potentially that opportunity. I think one of the reasons that rare diseases are so attractive to us for this particular approach is that rare diseases uh, in many cases are poorly understood instead of in terms of the exact uh, pathophysiology and exact mechanism. And so it, it wouldn't be uh, that surprising that we might find that some well-studied target could be playing a role in some specific rare disease that hadn't really been 
uh, understood to this point. It might be a little bit more far-fetched to imagine that some well-studied target that uh, potentially has drugs that are sort of shelved uh, that are targeted against it plays a role in a major disease for which many, you know, many, many labs and, and drug companies have already explored the pathophysiology of the disease. That said, I don't think it's it's impossible um, that some assets could be repositioned for large diseases. Where I think that the potential really lies is in sort of this making the leap from rare to common. So there are some rare diseases uh, like familial hypercholesterolemia for which studies uh, sort of uh, led us to uh, and an understanding of that rare disease led us to some target that ended up being hugely important for a bigger disease. Um, and I'm specifically talking in that about about the development of statins. Um, we see a number of these rare diseases that we're working on as sort of gateways towards understanding potentially what targets might actually be more important for a broader disease. Uh, we see that in some cases with osteoporosis and, and certain other uh, uh cardiovascular diseases as well. Chris Gibson, co-founder and CEO of Recursion Pharmaceuticals. Chris, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.